before I knew it, my room was filled with medical people, including Dr. Wojak, who was standing at my side, rubbing my hand, and they were all trying to figure out what was going on. And um, everything was normal. The pick line was normal. The medicine going in was fine. But every time the nurse tried to give me the steroid to counteract the uh, reaction, I would have one of those seizures. You know, I was pretty apprehensive, uh, you know, not knowing what to expect. I, I could... I could feel, I, this is kind of weird, but I could actually feel at times like those, the T-cells. I could actually thought I could feel them like in my abdomen area. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today we're going to do something different, something we think will really give you an idea about what goes on here at the James Cancer Hospital. We're calling this episode A Day in the Life of the James, and that day is Wednesday, June 19th. Everything you'll hear in this episode happened on June 19, 2019, a typical day at the James. Then again, there is no such thing as a typical day or a routine day at the James, not when you're the one diagnosed with cancer or you're the one being treated for cancer, not when you're a James doctor or a James nurse treating someone with cancer. Every day is a, is a roller coaster of emotions. Every day at the James is filled with life-altering diagnoses and treatment decisions, chemotherapies, radiation treatments, clinical trials, and outcomes. Some good, some not so good. And every day and every patient is special and important. And every day includes a, a lot of stories, very human stories. You know, sometimes we do have to give bad news. Sometimes we have to give difficult news. But overall, it's so rewarding to see patients really help them in a time that they need it, get to know them and their families very well, and hopefully offer them some hope, some reassurance, and plans um, for how to make their lives better and make their lives longer. That was Jennifer Woyak, one of the four James doctors who shared their day with us, along with two of their patients. Let's meet the four doctors, starting with Jennifer. We'll meet the two patients who you heard at the beginning of this podcast when they check in for their appointments at the James later in the day. Hi, my name is Jennifer Wyack. I'm a hematologist, and I primarily see patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, and a few other hematologic malignancies. My name is Samantha Jaklowski, and I see patients who need stem cell transplantation or cellular immunotherapy, primarily for lymphoma, but as we're learning more and more about cellular immunotherapy, um, we're branching out to treat patients who have sarcoma, lung cancer, cervical cancer, um, anyone with a, a cancer that's amenable to this kind of treatment. My name is Samik Roy Chowdhury. And I'm a physician scientist and medical oncologist, and I see patients with advanced cancer of any kind, and our mission is to identify and develop novel therapies for these patients and offer them hope. I'm David Cohn. I'm the chief medical officer of the James Cancer Hospital and a gynecologic oncologist. When I'm not seeing patients with gynecologic cancers, I'm also responsible for the care of all of the patients who are within the James Cancer Hospital. 
All four of these doctors have designated clinic days when they see patients. June 19th, a Wednesday, is a clinic day for Jennifer Woyak and for Samantha Jaglowski. Wednesday is lab meeting and lab research day for Samik Chowdhury. Our lab is composed of uh, 10 full-time researchers, and the, the researchers comprise a couple different disciplines. And so we combine disciplines that we call genetics of cancer, the biology of cancer, uh, what we call computer science or computational biology, where we analyze big data. And uh, we also include uh, drug development as, as a discipline. And so being able to combine all of these disciplines together in a multidisciplinary team allows us to hopefully solve problems better and faster than we would otherwise. And, and the last connection that we have is to our patients. So uh, at least uh, four of our team members are seeing patients each week on Tuesdays. Wednesday is an administrative day for Dave Cohn, and that means one meeting after the next, starting first thing in the morning. So at my 7 o'clock meeting, I had a group of about six surgeons uh, where we were trying to figure out what the right leadership structure is within the operating room for a specific opportunity to try to make the operating room run more efficiently. You know, our goal in this process is to ensure that when our patients hit the front door, that they're expedited through the entire process, uh, through the operating room and through recovery, so that they have the highest quality experience with the best patient experience as well. We were able to really look at this data that informed us on some opportunities um, of the ways that we can kind of piece the puzzle of the operating rooms together in a way that we have less time where the ORs are being underutilized or unutilized, and that really is the way that we can get patients through the system um, with a much better patient experience and less weight. One of the first patients Samantha Jaglowski saw was a woman who was four years out from a stem cell transplant. She's doing really well. Samantha and this woman have become close over the past few years, and her visits are usually a chance to catch up and share a few laughs. This visit was different. One of the things my nurse noticed when she came in was despite the fact that she looked really physically good, um, she marked all of these things on um, kind of our nursing intake, psychosocial assessments about not sleeping well, fatigue, being depressed. And when we dug into it, we found out that her brother died in March, and that was really affecting her since, you know, he was her best friend. So it was one of those times where you, you know, kind of get to realize how privileged you are to be a part of their life like that when they come in and they open up and they start talking about these things that are affecting. She had follicular lymphoma and um, she'd been through a few lines of treatment and it always came back and with follicular lymphoma it's um, it's a low-grade lymphoma or indolent so it doesn't grow very fast um, but sometimes it can be a little bit more aggressive, it can behave a little bit more like an aggressive lymphoma, and we can't cure it with just chemotherapy alone. So for those patients, we'll talk about um, bringing in a new donor immune system to try to recognize the cancer and kill it. She lived with her brother after her transplant, and then he passed away. Her brother passed away unexpectedly in March. And, um, you know, this was, she said this was one of these things that she and her niece talked about on the way up about, you know, who, who was going to tell me because neither of them thought that they could get through it without crying. Samantha Jaglowski has her own cancer journey story. 
I was diagnosed with um, a brain tumor called an ependymoma in 2008, um, and I'm I'm doing just fine. I've been able to return to you know, practice medicine and research and um, help out a bunch of people, but it's definitely colored the way I approach patient care. One of the first patients Jennifer Woyak saw was a woman who came to the James for a second opinion. Well, one of my first patients of the day um, was a lady who came to see me with relatively newly diagnosed CLL um, who was coming for a second opinion after establishing care um, with a physician down in Florida. And she came up to see us at Ohio State because of our experience treating patients with CLL. Um, I think like most new patients we see, she was really eager to have more information about the disease. Why did she get it? You know, what's likely to happen to her over time? And is there any way that we can predict how things are going to go in the future? So um, that's actually one of my favorite types of consults because since I do see so many patients with CLL, you know, I think that I can um, understand what people are going to ask and what people usually come wanting more information about. So I was able to tell her a little bit more about the biology of CLL. So why do some people get CLL? Why do other people not get the disease? Um, Tell her a little bit about the natural history, um, you know, that it's a very heterogeneous disease. Some people What does does heterogeneous mean? So So some people will go for a long period of time without needing treatment for their CLL. And actually, there's a lot of people who never need treatment in the course of their lifetime. Um, Other people, though, will need treatment relatively early on in their disease course. And so, you know, most people know that when they meet with their first physician and then wonder, which group am I going to be in? Am I likely to be somebody who can go for many years without treatment? Or do I need to cancel my trip that's coming up this fall because I'm going to need to start therapy? Yeah, so people come from all over the country to see our CLL team here at the James because we have a lot of expertise in treating CLL. Um, We've been at the forefront of developing new therapies in the disease. Um, We have and currently have a lot of innovative clinical trials that are trying to improve upon our current standards of care. Um, and I think that that's something that people recognize. And, um, you know, if when they become more um, involved in their care, in their CLL care, and more interested in um, learning more about the disease, they kind of start looking on the internet and see that there's a few places around the country that um, have a lot of clinical trials going on and have a lot of expertise in the area. When this woman from Florida and other um, uh, patients come for second opinion, is that something you give them right there or then you then consult with their doctor back home? So that's a great question. And usually it's a two-part visit. So on the first visit, we go through, you know, what's happened in their disease so far, and we can talk in general about CLL. Um, Then we do a lot of specialized blood tests at that first visit. Um, They take a few weeks to come back. So we generally schedule people for a second visit in six to eight weeks or so when all the tests will be back. And then we can talk at that second visit a lot more clearly about what they can expect moving forward. So this woman- and if somebody c- comes needing treatment that first time, and then we can talk more about therapies and then have them think a little bit about what they might want to do when they go home and then come back for a, a final decision. 
Let's head over to Samik Chowdhury's lab in the Biomedical Research Tower, which is a couple hundred yards away from the James. Samik and his team specialize in what's known as precision cancer medicine. Yeah, precision cancer medicine is the concept that we can understand the biology of a patient's cancer that's unique to them and develop and offer them a tailored therapy that fits their cancer best. Samik met first thing in the morning with a new graduate student who will be working in his lab, and then something unexpected came up. You know, a patient that I had, you know, seen um, uh, on Monday that it was hospitalized for a problem from their cancer um, involving uh, a metastatic colorectal cancer that had, you know, invaded the liver. And so I, I went over to the James Cancer Hospital and visited with them, talked to them about what's going to happen in the next 48 hours and you know how we're going to try and manage this problem in the liver, which you know had not gotten much better since Monday. And so, uh, so in between the research meetings, you know, this was a reminder um, for me of, of why we do what we do. You know, cancer is a problem uh, because it invades other organs and causes problems, and we have to find therapies that shrinks the cancer and prevents this from happening. And so, so you know, quite the motivation for me to, to see that problem, work with the family about what we're going to do, and then come back to the, to the research lab uh, for our next meeting. I went back later that day uh, in the evening after my, all of my other meetings to see what had happened. And um, it's, it's the, the procedure that I wanted him to have to help his liver problem hadn't happened yet. And it was being delayed because he had uh, a new problem involving his lungs, uh, which led to some fluid in his lungs, which I believe originated from the liver problem. And this led to his oxygen levels becoming quite low, and he needed supplemental oxygen. We'll check in later in the day with Samik to find out what happened when he went back over to the James to check in on his patient and see how he's doing. My name is Wayne Sievertson, and I was diagnosed with a large B-cell lymphoma. Uh, diagnosis date was November 17, 2018. Wayne had an appointment with Samantha Jaglowski on June 19th. He and his wife, Regina, or Reggie, live in the little town of Bel Air on the eastern edge of Ohio, not far from Pittsburgh. At the time of his diagnosis, uh, Wayne had just retired from AEP Ohio, a large energy producer, and he he just wasn't feeling right. Something was wrong. He had a pain in his stomach that, that wouldn't go away. Wayne and Reggie were visiting two of their daughters who live in Columbus, and, and the pain got worse. When I first walked through the doors to be, to, and I actually got diagnosed, I was, we went through the ER. And I was very, very impressed with all the people there. They were very caring. And uh, when they came back and said, well, you know, Mr. Sievertson, I'm sorry to say it's cancer. And the first thing I thought, well, (laughs) I'm in the right place. But uh, as far as the James itself, medical, everybody on the medical staff, from the nurses on the floors to the doctors. Just super. 
Yeah. I, I, I don't think I could have been in a better place, to be honest with you. I think that was, that was meant to be. It was meant to be because the James and Samantha Jaglowski are experts in treating this type of cancer. Wayne was where he needed to be. He and his wife are great people. Um, who He originally saw me to talk about an autologous or a self-transplant um, for aggressive lymphoma. Meaning using, using his own... Right, using his own cells. Okay. And um, we tried to enroll him on a clinical trial to see if we could get our traditional conditioning regimen, basically our sort of last shot of chemo before we give someone their own cells back, um, if we could get that chemo to work better. But um, unfortunately, we couldn't get stem cells out of him to go ahead with a transplant, which doesn't happen too often. But sometimes after chemotherapy, someone's bone marrow gets you know relatively stingy. And so we can't get enough cells in order to safely go ahead with a transplant and give them the cells that they would need back to repopulate. Um, so this actually made him eligible to go on to um, commercial CAR-T therapy or engineered cell therapy for um, aggressive lymphoma. Reggie is a great caregiver for Wayne, and she was there every step of the way with him during his treatment. When she and Wayne were told he couldn't produce enough stem cells for a transplant, it was an emotional moment. When Wayne was going through all of this, um, and we were up there like the end of March, and he was, they were trying to get the stem cells, to collect the stem cells to go through the stem cell their, um, transplant. That same day, we found out that his stem cells could not be harvested uh, Dr. Jaglowski said 5% of patients, this happens to them, and unfortunately my husband was one of them. Um, but within 30 minutes of us finding out he could not have the stem cell transplant, we were with Dr. Jaglowski, and we were talking and, and getting information on the CAR-T therapy, and, and saying this is our next plan. There was the one thing that strikes me up at the James with um, the doctors and the staff. As soon as they get um, any kind of information that is detrimental to the patient, they act on it. Um, and, and have a new plan? Yes. The new plan was the CAR T-cell therapy Samantha mentioned. It's cutting edge and is showing great promise in treating the type of cancer Wayne had. Let's let Wayne describe what CAR T-cell therapy is. Near as I can tell, they take uh, protein samples from the, uh, the cancer itself, and they, they take my uh, T-cells, and they send them off to an outfit. In this case, it was out in California, and they... Some, and this is the part I don't understand, and a lot of people probably won't either, but somehow they tweak the T-cells with the protein from the cancer, and when they ship them back, these guys are looking for those particular proteins. 
on, for the cancer. And, and uh, they just seem to do a, I don't know what, you know, I like to call it a seek and destroy mission. Well, they're, they're looking for these proteins of the cancer, and they're actually attacking the cells uh, one by one. And if I understand Dr. Jaglowski correctly, this isn't something that's a one and done. It's, it's just because they've been in there and attacking the tumor, they will continue to work for another, uh, in my case, at least another few months. So if there's anything that's trying to hide somewhere, these guys are going to find it. And it is amazing. They take your T-cells out, genetically alter them, and put them back in, and now they're like supercharged to, see, like you said, seek out and destroy. So like I like to call myself, I'm a genetically modified organism now. Oh. GMO guy. <laughs> okay. Wayne's T-cells really were genetically modified, and they immediately went to work killing the cancer cells. You know, I was pretty apprehensive, and uh, you know, not knowing what to expect. I, I, could, I could feel, I, this is kind of weird, but I could actually feel at times like those, the T-cells. I could actually thought I could feel them like in my abdomen area. And this guy had a huge mass in his belly. Um, this thing was probably about the size of a football. And um, on the first set of imaging, it's now half that size, and it's broken up into two. So this is really fantastic you know, for a response at this stage in the game with something that was that big. So our hope is the next time we look, you know, in two months, we won't see anything at all. Well, she, you know, she's such a pleasant person, and she's... Uh... She treats you like a person, not a number. And, you know, we had a little conversation, and she uh, said, well, you know, uh, we have some good news. Uh, your, your tumor is shrinking, and actually it's, it's actually uh, divided into, it looks like it's dividing, which gives the T cells more access to more surface area to attack the, uh, the tumor itself. And she was thrilled about that. That's what I got from her, and naturally that that uh, transposed to us, and we were tickled to death. You know, there were a few tears, and uh, there still is, but uh, I think uh, we're doing we're doing pretty good now. The research it takes to develop new and, and life-saving cancer treatments, such as CAR T-cell therapy, is expensive, but it's, it's vital. Raising money for this research is now an important part of Dave Cohn's job. I had a 2.30 meeting then in my role as the medical director of uh, philanthropy and community relations for the James. And so this meeting was with the leadership of the development office at the cancer program just to talk about opportunities that we have to uh, enhance our fundraising as it relates to patient care as well as for cancer research itself. We obviously can't do what we're able to do at the James and the Comprehensive Cancer Center without having those fundraising resources to really facilitate um, the programs. Trying to figure out where we are relative to the goals of fundraising um, and making sure that we get our message out about why fundraising is so critically important to the operations of the cancer program itself. How many meetings do you think you had on Wednesday? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve meetings on Wednesday. 
12 meetings on Wednesday. Is that typical? Yeah, that's kind of a lightish day. I had a couple hours here and there to do my own thing, which is awesome. Dave was, was even able to squeeze in lunch between all these meetings, sort of. I literally bring a bag of food that I put out next to my desk at about 11 o'clock. Anywhere between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m., I'll bring my feed bag out and pick at that for whenever I have a couple seconds. So that's my typical lunch, if unless I've got a, a lunch meeting or a lunch uh, with others. Since it's lunchtime, let's take a, a quick break. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. Welcome back to our special Day in the Life of the James podcast. It's a little past noon. Let's head back over to the Biomedical Research Tower where Samik Ray Chowdhury and his team are in the midst of several different research-related meetings. Uh, Our team, uh, probably every other week, has what we call a KT session. KT stands for Knowledge Transfer. And what we do is we pick a topic that we think that one of our disciplines is uh, doing and we want to share it with the other disciplines in our team so they kind of have a better understanding. So, for example, some of the disciplines in our team include genomics, biology, computational biology, drug development, and diagnostics. And so this one was about some of the analyses that we do with big data on the Ohio supercomputer. So our computer science team Uh, over lunch, over this KT session, presented kind of what these analyses look like, these pipelines uh, of uh, analysis for big data, uh, of all the genomic data we're generating from our research projects and diagnostics projects, how do we analyze it? And so this helped inform the rest of our team, kind of how does this work, and and helps them understand and learn the jargon, uh, the, the, the capabilities, uh, the problems that their teammates are encountering so that we can better understand one another. Big data refers to uh, the genetics data that we're generating on patients with cancer. So millions and millions of pieces of, uh, of data regarding their genetic code in their cancer. And how do we decipher and recognize patterns in that data that are of significance? Next up was a meeting about FGFR. FGFR stands for fibroblast growth factor receptor genes. Uh, And what this meeting is about is a family of genes that are mutated or genetically changed in cancer and represent a new target for therapy. Uh, So this family of genes occurs in about anywhere from 5 to 10% of cancers and what we're trying to do is identify patients who have a abnormality in that gene, offer them a novel therapy called an inhibitor, which turns off the gene, and see how it helps them. And so far, we're seeing that we're helping quite a few patients in the clinical trials. We have five clinical trials uh, involving FGFR inhibitors right now, and 
what we hope to do is, in addition to, to the patients we're helping, we want to learn from those patients that we're not helping. And so this FGFR meeting covers the diagnostics, it covers the patients who are benefiting, and it helps us understand which patients we need to study further and develop new ways to treat them. How can we expand the potential patients with FGFR genes that could benefit? And we have to identify which ones are the, the most likely to benefit. Hello, my name is uh, Beverly Williford. On June 25th, 2018, um, I received the um, diagnosis of lymphoma. Beverly is one of Jennifer Woyak's last patients today. She was originally diagnosed at another hospital with CLL, or chronic lymphocytic leukemia, but after she was examined at the James, Jennifer determined it was actually mantle cell lymphoma. So mantle cell lymphoma is a, a type of intermediate to aggressive lymphoma um, that has a lot of features of the cells that are similar to CLL. So I actually have a few patients in my practice who came to me with a diagnosis of CLL that on further review, we realized that they actually had mantle cell lymphoma. So that's the case with this patient. Um, so she was diagnosed with mantle cell lymphoma, and the standard initial treatment for that is chemotherapy. Um, so this woman um, completed her six cycles of chemotherapy. Chemotherapy can have a lot of side effects, more for some patients than others, like Beverly. I started chemo on August 8th. Dr. Woyak decided to put me on a uh, chemo regimen that had three uh, medication. And I'd like to tell a little bit about the first day, August 8th, they gave me rituximab by itself because it tends to have a lot of uh, side effects. Well, after about a half hour, I start having side effects of that. I, um, went, I went into what I consider a seizure um, because my body would shake, my back would arch, and um, I would actually cry out. My nurse uh, was very anxious about that because she'd never seen that reaction before. And before I knew it, my room was filled with medical people, including Dr. Woyak, who was standing at my side, rubbing my hand. We were all trying to figure out what was going on. And um, everything was normal. The pick line was normal. The medicine going in was fine. But every time the nurse tried to give me the steroid to counteract the uh, reaction, I would have one of those seizures. So eventually they just stopped it and waited about a half hour and started it up again. And I was fine. And, you know, here's all this medical staff on my right side of my bed. On the left side of my bed, there was my wonderful husband just praying out loud. Um, and after, after they gave me that half-hour rest, I was fine. And then the next, I, it, that was Wednesday. And then Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, they added two more uh, medications. And it was those three meds that I had three days a month for six months. And so my sixth month, month was January. Wow, okay. And at the end of that, you were doing much better? Is that correct? Oh, yes. Yes, as a matter of fact, I was. Um, they actually did a bone marrow biopsy, and 
a uh, PET scan at in March, um, and they all they came back normal. They came back normal, completely normal. Praise God! I was so excited. On June nineteenth, I saw Dr. Wojak, and um, because I was having some concerns. Um, because I was still having some side effects, what I thought were possibly side effects from the rituximab, uh, even though I hadn't had anything since March. But I, I was also concerned that maybe something else was going on and just needed some verification that the bone marrow and the lymph nodes were still good. And so... Um, on the 19th, when I had had that bone marrow biopsy done, and on the 19th, when I saw her, she said the bone marrow biopsy was completely good. There was no lymphoma, nothing abnormal on the uh, bone marrow biopsy. So, that, so those lingering side effects you were feeling were just that from the lingering side effects from the chemo. Right. She uh, she said that she thought that's what it was. It's just the lingering side effects from the chemotherapy. So that, how did that, that's great news. How did you react to that? Oh, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm celebrating. <laughs> I'm going to have a party. I'm going to, you'll get an invitation. You know, it's just great news. Great news. Um, just thrilled being thrilled. Okay. I just, you, you know, I just really feel like, um, you know, took a deep breath and said, but I had to say, say, thank you, God, because he's been a part of this journey, this entire journey that I've been on. And uh, it's been an ongoing journey that lots of ups and downs and went through a lot of things. My entire time going to the James, I have not found one person who has not been kind and caring and supportive and who wants to help you, no matter where they're at, whether uh, registration, you know, uh, ICC, Dr. J- Dr. Wojak's office, um, the infusion area, uh, ER, no matter where I went, people were loving and caring and really made you feel like you were important. Seeing Beverly on June 19th was also a memorable day for Jennifer Wojak. This means that she is cancer-free and in remission right now. As we've just heard and learned, a lot goes on in a single day at the James. Let's see if we can quantify that with a little help. My name is Dave Goski, and I'm the Executive Director of Administration for the James. Our role here in administration is to ensure that the doctors and nurses and social workers and all of the other members of the care team have the, have the resources that they need to do the job, what I call the real work at the front lines, taking care of patients, doing research in their research labs, finding cures for tomorrow. Give us the rundown, the numbers for that day. So on that day, we had 1,470 outpatients visit the cancer center that day. Of them, 1,270 had been here before, and we had 200 new patients um, visit that day for the first time. Um, In the clinics, too, we had 724 patients meet with a physician and 190 meet with a nurse practitioner or another member of the care team. 
142 patients received chemotherapy, and 294 patients had a radiation medicine treatment. Uh, in our call center, we had 1,523 phone calls made that day, and 718 patient appointments were also completed. On the inpatient side, we had 326 patients, and 36 patients were discharged. Um, we had 67 surgeries performed that day, and there were 8,274 different medications administered to our patients that day. And finally, three patients were enrolled on a clinical trial. So this was a fairly normal day for patient volume in the James, other than our clinical trial area, where we normally have five or six patients enrolled per day. For the year that ended at the end of June, the James staff administered more than 50,000 chemotherapies. There were more than 65,000 radiation treatments, and James surgeons performed almost 18,000 surgeries. Every day is a reminder of the impact of cancer, how pretty much everyone has been touched directly or indirectly by cancer. Let's head back over to Samantha Jaglowski's clinic. It's after 6 p.m., and her day is almost over. Yeah, I'm, I'm usually you know, pretty tired at the end of the day. Um, once we see our final patient, um, my nurses, my nurse practitioner, and I will sit down together, and we'll go through the list of everyone we saw that day, make sure all of the orders are in, um, make sure we've got the follow-up set, we all know what the plan is. So we don't miss anything. Um, and then we'll, you know, maybe sit and talk a little bit and debrief about the day. And by the time I go home, I'm usually um, pretty tired. What's it like to be able to deliver good news like that? And then the reverse, sometimes you, you have to give bad news. How do, how do you do that, handle that? The good news and knowing that you know, that's why we're all here, makes the bad news, I think, a little bit easier. It's, you know, it's hard to deliver bad news. It just is, you know you're going to devastate someone. And that's really a hard thing to walk into a room knowing that you're going to do. Um, and I think the the best thing you can do in that situation is just, you know, have a plan for one. I think, you know, I think probably the worst thing you can do is drop bad news on someone and then not be able to follow that up with, but here's what we're going to do about it. So I think that kind of helps me is just like thinking through the next step and it's like, okay, where do we go from here? Um, and, you know, sometimes here maybe, you know, the next line of treatment here maybe. No treatment may be the best thing, but just kind of not leaving them hanging out and not knowing where you're going from here, I think that, that sort of helps, making sure that they know that we're always here for them, no matter what's going on, um, and you know, no matter what's going on with, with the cancer, that they have the support and Ohio State and the James, that, you know, that part I can always guarantee is I can't guarantee I'm going to fix things, but I can guarantee I'm going to try to do my best for them. 
let's check back in with Samikra Chowdhury and the patient who was having some problems earlier in the day. Later that evening, I returned to, to see uh, the patient that, that I'd uh, uh, been uh, working with earlier in the day in the hospital with the liver problem. And I, I returned because I learned he had a new oxygen problem. Uh, so there was now fluid accumulated on the right side of his lung. And this was due to the liver problem and infection. And because of this oxygen problem, it was going to make it hard for him to have the procedure he needed to, to address the liver and unblock the liver and help the infection there. And so it just happened by chance that when I was coming to see him, uh, a pulmonary physician, uh, one of our specialists came to see him at the same time and had talked to him about doing a procedure called a thoracentesis. And this is a procedure where you put a very small needle into the lung to drain fluid, and that could help relieve some of that pressure and hopefully help his breathing and oxygen. And so I, since I was there, I assisted. Um, I, I really just assisted by helping to position my patient and kind of hold his hand through the procedure. And then within a matter of minutes, our, our lung specialist had drained the fluid. And, uh, you know, our hope was that this was going to help him breathe better, help his oxygen, and then later that night um, help him have that procedure. Uh, on a research-focused day uh, uh, like today, you know, we cover topics from training students to, you know, drug development and identifying patients who could benefit from new therapies. Uh, but at the end of the day, we do all of that because of patients and, and helping give them a longer life with good quality of life. And so, uh, you know, throughout the day, uh, that's the number one priority. And, you know, certainly we can make uh, a plans to, 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 to cover these other topics when we need to. Uh, but patient care comes first. There you have it, a day in the life of the James. Thank you, Jennifer Wojak, Samantha Jaglowski, Dave Cohn, and Samikroy Chowdhury for sharing your day, your inspiring work, and your patience with us. Thank you, Dave Gosky, for giving us some context on the sheer number of patients that pass through the doors of the James every day. And a special thanks to Wayne and Reggie and to Beverly for sharing your courageous cancer journey stories. And thanks to my co-producer, Paul Kotheimer, for helping to make this podcast possible. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.